And what I want to talk about tonight is something that's very dear to my heart. Uh, unfortunately, it's not dear to most professing Christians' hearts. In fact, in some Christians' eyes, this has become a dirty word. And uh, if you even mention this word in some churches, they'll, they'll call you all kinds of names. They may call you a heretic. They may call you a legalist. They may call you self-righteous. They may call you a Pharisee. They may say you are a work salvation person. Let's see how you respond to this word. Perfection. What do you think about that word? What comes to your mind? What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear this P word that many Christians, at least in America, that I know, think is a dirty word? So, before we get into what the Bible says about this subject, I want to tell you what biblical perfection is not. Because there's a lot of wrong ideas and a lot of things connected to this word that don't belong connected to it. <clears throat> So in order to clarify, before I get into what it is, I want to tell you what it isn't. What it isn't. First of all, it isn't intellectual perfection. You and I will forget things. You and I will make mistakes with our brain. You ever taken a test in school? Get an answer wrong? It's because you're not intellectually perfect. Maybe you didn't study hard enough. Maybe that's it. But it's because you're not intellectually perfect. Perfection, biblical perfection, is also not physical perfection. No matter how much you lift weights, no matter how much you play sports, no matter how much you exercise, you'll never ever be physically perfect in this world. That's for the next world. That's what our new body's for, our glorified body. Biblical perfection does not mean you can walk on water. Okay? I talk about this. I preach on college campuses all the time across the U.S., as Miss said. And oftentimes I'll bring up this topic in the open air. And I'll say, well, walk on water for us. Do a miracle. But I, I'm not claiming to be Jesus. I'm claiming that I won't bang God and walk in victory. Biblical perfection is, does not mean you have never sinned. I mean, Romans 3.23 makes it pretty, pretty clear, don't you think? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So you've all sinned at some point in time. So it's not saying you're biblically perfect in that sense. Because only Jesus has done that. Amen? So it doesn't mean you've never sinned. And biblical perfection does not mean that you don't have the ability to sin anymore. Some people seem to think that if you, if you become perfect according to the Bible, that you don't have the ability to sin anymore. That you're just, you, you lack the ability. You're just gonna be, it's a state you reach. You'll never leave it again. Of course, that's the goal. So these are things biblical perfection is not. Let's define sin, because this is what, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about perfection. We're talking about sin here. Let's define sin according to the Bible. 1 John 3, 4. Sin is transgression of the law. Breaking God's law. That's sin. Romans 14, 23. Whatever is not of faith is sin. And in context there, it's talking about sins of conscience. You know, most of you here are called in some way to some field in the future. You may not even know what it is yet. But when that time comes and God tells you, show who, you're called to Nigeria. If Chohu doesn't obey that call, that's a sin for him. But if I don't go to Nigeria, it's not a sin for me. And that's different for each person. That's sins of conscience. Whatever's not of faith is sin. James 4.17 To him who knows to do the good 
and does not do it, to him it is sin. If you know something you should be doing or shouldn't be doing, and you're doing it anyway, you're sinning. But you see, there has to be a knowledge there. There has to be an understanding there. And that is required, that is a foundation for committing sin. You have to have an understanding, a knowledge, a mental capacity to be able to sin. And then Romans 3.23, all have sinned. And then there's the Greek word, hamartia, which means miss the mark. What's the mark? Complete obedience to the law of God. That's the mark. Complete moral obedience to the law of God that He's revealed to you. What is perfection then? We've seen what it isn't. We've seen what sin is. What is biblical perfection? Well, it's obeying the law of God. But you know what Jesus said? He said this in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 to 40. A lawyer came to him and says, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said, Love the Lord your God, your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And in doing so, you fulfill the law. So, biblical perfection, to put it in very simple terms, is love. It's love. It's loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's loving, your, it's loving your neighbor as yourself. That's what biblical perfection is. And the opposite of love, loving your neighbor as yourself, putting them first, putting God first, putting your neighbor next, putting you last. The opposite of love then is selfishness. So biblical perfection is not being selfish. It's loving God and loving others. So the question becomes, with all these things defined now, what it isn't, what it is, what sin is, is it possible? Is it possible for you? Is it possible for me? That's the question. Well, let's look at some people in the Bible who the Bible calls perfect. Noah, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9. The context here is God's about to destroy the world. He's, he's angry with man. God is angry with the wicked every day, the Bible says, Psalm 7 11. He's angry with men because the, the intent of their heart is always evil continually. But the Bible says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Why? Because he's just like the rest? No. Because in his generations, Noah was perfect. He walked with God. Now, does that mean that Noah never sinned? No. Once again, biblical perfection does not mean you've never sinned. It means you're currently loving God and loving people. And the Bible even says in, in, in Peter that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And you know that from the day Noah was called to build the boat until the day the flood started was over a hundred years. Can you imagine preaching to a generation where no one was going to be saved except for you for a hundred years? That, my friend, is love. That's why God says in the last days it should be as days of Noah. So you think the Philippines are bad? It's going to get worse. Are you willing to stand in the gap like Noah and be perfect in your generation? Job. Satan came to Job and, Job, and, and Satan came to God and God said, Have you considered my servant Job? Who's blameless and upright. There's no one else on the earth like him. Job 1.8. You know, and, and the whole thing, people who come against perfection, it makes you wonder if they ever read the book of Job. Because the whole point of Job is Job saying, I've done nothing to deserve this. He maintains his purity and his holiness before God. He says, God, I've done nothing. Of course, he doesn't know the devil's behind his problems, not God. The devil's behind his problems. 
And his friends are saying, well, you must have done something, Job. God wouldn't let these things happen to you unless you've done something wrong, unless you've sinned against him. And he maintains his purity. You know what God says in the end? He rebukes the ones who are coming against Job. He says, my, my, my servant Job will pray for you now. Because he's done what is right in my eyes. So we have Noah, we have Job. We also have David in Psalm chapter 18. Listen to what David says in Psalm 18. David was a man after God's own heart. Of course, he wasn't always a man after God's own heart. Didn't he sin with Bathsheba? Had Uriah killed? He was wicked in those times. Psalm 18, verse 20. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all His judgments were before me, and I did not put away His statutes from me. I was also blameless before Him, and I kept myself from iniquity. Therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in His sight. I kept all the commandments of God, David is saying here. Let me ask you a question. There's something super spiritual about Noah, about Job, about David that you can't be? There's something different about them that God make them differently, that they can accomplish these things, but you can't? Of course not. They're just men, just like we are. Then we have the parents of John the Baptist, Luke chapter 1 and verse 6. And it says this, and they were both righteous before God, walking all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. Walking some of the commandments? No. Walking all the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord blameless. Then we have Joseph of Arimathea, the one who took the body of Jesus and buried it in the tomb. Luke chapter 23 and verse 50. It says this, Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. The word just is the same word translated as righteous from the Greek. So, is this possible? Well, if other people in the Bible have done it, is it possible? Or did God give them some kind of super grace that He hasn't given us? If God's given them more grace than He's given us and we aren't obeying Him, then whose fault is it that we're not obeying Him? God's fault. But God forbid we ever blame God for our sin. The next question is, after we've answered the question, is this possible, people in the Bible have done it, does God command it? Well, let's look at it. I've got a bunch of scriptures for this. Matthew 5, 48. Jesus said, the Sermon on the Mount, where after He's talking about love here, because love's the fulfillment of the law, Love is perfection, according to the Bible. Be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Now, did he say strive for perfe perfection? Did he say strive for it? No, he said be. Be perfect, is what he said. You know, it makes me wonder, why would anyone strive for anything that it can't attain? I mean, I don't try to attain flying from the Philippines back to Kentucky with my arms flapping in the air. It's not going to happen. I don't bother trying something that can't be attained, that I can't actually do. It'd be worth, it'd be a waste of my time. 
Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Here's the important part. Let the wicked forsake his ways, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and I will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. What's the condition for being pardoned, having mercy? Forsaking your wicked ways, your unrighteous thoughts. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 14. But above all these things, above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Perfection. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart, for they shall see God. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given Himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Your obedience is a sweet-smelling aroma to God. But wickedness is a stench in His nostrils. What did God say about lukewarmness in Revelation? Spewed out of His mouth. Must not taste good to Him. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9. He became the author of eternal life to all those who obey Him. Who obey Him. Not those who disobey Him, to those who obey Him. Hebrews 12, 14. Without holiness, no man will see the Lord. Luke 13, 3 and 5. Jesus repeats it twice, just so we don't miss it. Repent or perish. Repent or perish. Or perish. What does repent mean? Does repent mean you feel sorry about it? Does repent means you, you're, you're sorry you got caught or there's consequences for your sin? The repent means you've changed your mind. I used to think sin was okay. Now it's not okay. And I'm going to stop it. I'm going to stop it. That's what repentance means. 1 Corinthians 15 34. Awake unto righteousness, Paul said, and sin not. I'll wake in the righteousness and sin not. So God has commanded us. John 5, 14. The man who's been healed by Jesus after being lame for 38 years. He said, go and sin no more. Lest a worse thing happen. If you go back to your sin or your stain, your sin, all that can happen to you is worse things, friends. All that can happen to you is worse things. John 8, 11, The woman called in adultery. Jesus said to her, go and sin no more. Did he mean it? Did he mean go and sin no more? Or did he really mean go and sin some more? Or did he really mean go and sin a little bit less? No, go and sin no more. Matthew 6, 24. You can't have two masters. You can't love both God and money. You'll serve the one and hate the other, or you despise the one and love the other. You can't have two masters. So you're Jesus or your sin. It's either sin or holiness. It's either heaven or hell. There's no in-between. There's no purgatory. There's no halfway righteousness. It's either all or nothing. All or nothing. James 4.4 4, Adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. A friend of the world is an enemy of God. John chapter 8 and verse 34. Listen to what Jesus says here. John 8, 34. Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. Whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Has the Son made you free? Are you free indeed? Are you committing sin and therefore still a slave to sin? Or are you abiding in Christ? And not committing sin, you're a slave to righteousness. John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Now what is love? Is love a feeling? Love a, a hug? A kiss? It's a warm, fuzzy feeling? Is it that feeling you get when you lift your hands when you're praising God? Is that what love is? Let me ask you this. If I say I love my wife till I'm blue in the face, if I go out and cheat on her every day, do I love her? If I, if I have feelings for her, these good feelings for her that, t that are trying to tell me I love her, but I'm cheating on her, do I really love her? In the same way, Jesus said, if you love me, you obey my commandments in John 14, 15. And then he says in John 14, 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him, the one who is obeying the commandments. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my word, my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And then again in John 15 and verse 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. There's a comparison there. You and Jesus. How did Jesus keep the Father's commandments? Completely. Perfectly. What should we be doing? The same thing. The very same thing. 1 Peter 15, 16. Who wrote down the Scriptures? Holy men of old, <coughs> under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they wrote the Scriptures. So what kind of men were they? They were holy men? Were they hypocrites? Well, let's find out. 1 uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Now, a hypocrite is defined as someone who tells you to do something they're not doing themselves. Or claims to be something they're really not. Can Peter really give a command to be holy as God is holy as he's doing it himself? He'd be a hypocrite then. And now he's not a holy man. Now he's not qualified to write the scriptures. And then we have the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 26. Actually, chapter 24, actually. Chapter 24 and verse 16. Paul gave in his defense before Felix. He says, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and man. That's the Apostle Paul. I strive to have a conscience void of offense between, before God and before men. So are, are Paul and Peter, are they hypocrites? No. 
They're holy men who wrote down the scriptures. And then we have the whole book of 1 John. You don't believe in biblical, biblical perfection? Read the book of 1 John and tell me the Bible doesn't command you to be holy as He is holy. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 and 7. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He's in the light, no darkness at all. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 2, 1. The whole reason why John's writing this epistle, you're about to hear it. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Now, if it's impossible to may not sin, he just wasted a whole letter. He wasted a whole letter. And then it says, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate of the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And what you just heard is it should be the attitude of every true Christian. If anyone sins. See, too many Christians think, well, I'm going to sin tomorrow. It's a matter of when I'm going to sin. Not if. When. But the Christian's mindset is if. My goal, personally, is to never, ever sin again. To the glory of God. And that should be your goal as well. And it's a goal that is meetable, otherwise I wouldn't have it as a goal, period. 1 John 2, verses 3 through 7. Now by this, we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. Whatever keeps His word, truly the love of God is perfected in Him. By this, we know that we are in Him. So how do you know you know Him? You keep His commandments. How do you know you're in Him? You're keeping His commandments. That's Bible. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it but he who does the will of God will abide forever. 1 John 2, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. How do you know you're born of him? You're practicing righteousness. 1 John 3, 3. And everyone who has this hope, Christ coming back in him, purifies himself just as he is pure. Just as he is pure. 1 John 3, 6. Whoever abides in him, guess what? They don't sin. Whoever abides in Him does not sin. Does not sin. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as He is righteous. Listen to this part. But he who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that He might destroy the works of the devil. God wants to destroy the works of the devil in your life. Because he who sins is of the devil. He doesn't want anyone to be of the devil. So we're talking about loving God here. Now about loving your neighbor. Verses 14 and 15 of 1 John 3. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love the brethren, his brother, abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life in him. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17. Love has been perfected among us in this, that you may have boldness in the day of judgment. 
You know, if you're not living a holy life, you're not in complete obedience to God's commandments, you can't have any kind of confidence on the day of judgment. You'll have no assurance of salvation in this life either. You'll be constantly in insecurity in this life if not obeying the commandments of God. You know, and sometimes I'll hear people say, God's commandments are too hard to obey. They're a burden to me. It's a bondage, 1 John 5, 3. And this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not, not burdensome. They're not burdensome. She said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. For the child of God, it's a joy, a joy to keep His commandments. Not a burden, friends. It's not a bondage. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is a victory that's overcome the world. Our faith. Our faith. So we see God commands it abundantly in the Scriptures. The question becomes, are you able? Other men were able? Does God command it? Yes. Other men were able? Yes. Are you able? If we're not able, what does that say of God? What does it say of Him? He gives you a command you can't obey? What does that say of God? What do you think of someone on earth, a president or a king, saying, do this and you couldn't do it, and then he punished you for it? What does it say of God if you can't keep a commandment that he gives you? He's a dictator, a vicious dictator, if that's the truth of God. Do you have free will? Do you really have free will? And you can obey him. It's simply your choice of whether you will obey him. It's not a matter of ability, it's a matter of willingness. Are you willing? Surely you are able. Do you serve an all-powerful God? Is He able to give you power over sin and victory over temptation? Well, Philippians 4.13 answers that for us. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All things through Christ. We also see in 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you're able, there's ability there, able to bear. But when you're tempted, He'll provide a way out so you can stand up under that temptation. That's God for you. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. So the question becomes, which sin can't you stop? Which sin can't you stop? Tell me one sin you can't stop. There isn't one. There isn't one sin you can't stop. But the question becomes, how do we do it? How do we walk in this moral holiness, this moral perfection? Well, Joshua 1.8. Do not let this book of law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. That you may be careful to do everything in it. You meditate upon His law day and night. Psalm 119, 9 and 11. David asked the question, How can a young man be pure? Verse 11, he answers it. I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. John 15, you abide in Christ. Because apart from Him, you can produce no good fruit. As He is the vine, you're the branches, you abide in Him, you'll produce much good fruit. And He'll prune you so you can produce more good fruit. That's what it says in 1 John 3, 6. If you abide in Him, you will not sin. You will not sin. So you need to hide God's Word in your heart. You need to meditate on His law. You need to abide in Him. You need to pray and walk 
in the Spirit. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 16. Actually, I believe it's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. Maybe not. Well, I think I might have noted it wrong here, but the point, the point is, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's what the verse says. If you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You know what you need to examine your life. What is bringing unnecessary temptation into your life? You know what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 29 and 30? He says, if your hand causes you to sin... Cut it off. Cast it from you. It's better to go to heaven with one hand than go to hell with both your hands. If your eye calls you sin, pluck it out. Cast it from you. It's better to go to heaven with one eye than go to hell with both your eyes. Do everything you can to get the temptation and sin out of your life that's unnecessary. You also need to guard your heart. Proverbs 4.23 Guard your heart above all else for it's the wellspring of life. Guard your heart. The devil's prowling around like a lion. Looking to devour whom he will. 1 Peter 5 8. You need to be watchful of the devil. Guard your heart. Be watchful of the devil. Pluck out the eye. Cut off the hand. Meditate on the law of God. Abide in Christ. Pray. Walk in the Spirit. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 10 5. Take every thought captive. Keep a tight ring on your tongue. Otherwise, your religion is worthless, according to James. In order to keep a tight ring on his tongue, is a perfect man, James said. Able to keep his whole body in check. Temptation will come. It will come. Every day. Multiple times a day. So don't let down your guard and say, I'm doing pretty good. The moment you do that, temptation will come and you will fall. You will fall. <coughs> but when temptation does come, you submit to God Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James 4, 7. You must die daily, friends. Paul didn't say, I sin daily. He said, I die daily. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, Take up your cross daily. Deny yourself and follow me. Follow me. But the whole key to living a holy life is relationship. That abiding, intimate relationship with Christ from which flows a natural love for His law and obeying His commandments. And obeying His commandments. Now I've heard some objections to this teaching before. I'll just go through them real quick. Some might say, I'm saved by faith, not works. I agree. You're saved by grace, through faith, not of works. But what does your works prove? It proves your faith is genuine. It proves you have a live faith. A working faith. Because faith without works is dead. Dead. Your works prove your faith. Faith doesn't save. Works don't save. The grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ saves. But you must have faith and you must have works. Otherwise, you will not be saved. Otherwise, you will not be saved. No faith or no works equals no salvation. I'm saved by grace, they'll say. By the grace of God. Not by works. I'm under grace. Well, the question is, what is grace? Is this account you can use that you can sin all you want and just subtract from it all you need? Now listen to the biblical definition of grace in Titus 2. For the grace of God which brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, 
Looking forward to the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people, zealous for good works. If someone claims to have the grace of God, and that doesn't describe them, they don't have the grace of God. Grace is not a license to sin. Grace is the power to overcome sin. And they'll say, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. That's a quote from Romans 6.14, but it's just a half a quote. The first part says, sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. If you're under grace, even more the reason not to sin. Christ shed His blood for me. I can't give Him my obedience back. How dare I? How dare I? They'll say, it's a bondage. It's a burden to, to obey God. The commandments are a burden. They're a bondage. Where we saw, they're not a burden. Romans 6, verse 16 through 18. We'll see which way is a bondage, friends. Is obeying God a bondage? Or is going back to your sin bondage? Romans 6, 16. Do you not know to whom you present yourself slaves to obey? You are that one's slaves whom you obey? Whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Are you a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness? If you're a slave to sin, now you're in bondage. Now you're in bondage. They may say, well, sanctification is supposed to be progressive. You get holier as you go along. Sanctification from the Bible is not giving up sin little by little as you go through your life. You give up your sin the day you get converted. And if you didn't, you weren't converted. You were converted if you didn't give up your sin. Sanctification is simply continuing in that holiness. And as God reveals new things to you, you, you become immediately obedient to the things He reveals to you as He reveals them to you. Always in constant obedience to the knowledge that God's given you. They'll say, well, Paul said in Philippians 3.12, I have not yet attained perfection. Yeah, but in context, talking about physical perfection and the resurrection from the dead. And he's right. He hadn't attained that yet. He was still living. He was still on the earth, still writing letters, still writing epistles to the church. But I'm not talking about physical perfection. I'm talking about moral perfection. Or someone say, well, I'll obey God when I die. And until then, I can't completely obey Him question for someone who would ask that question. Who's your Savior then? Is it Jesus? Or is it death? And if death's your Savior, then why does God cast death into the lake of fire in the end? Is God casting your Savior into the lake of fire? No, my Savior is Jesus. Who's more powerful in your life? Death or Jesus? Can you have victory over sin? This body right here is simply dirt. He made Adam out of the dust of the earth. This dirt right here that God's formed into my body and my mother's womb, knitted together long ago, this will never ever stop me from obeying God. It will never ever make me sin. It will never ever make you sin either. If it does make you sin, you have an excuse now. And if you have an excuse for your sin, then God's word is wrong when it says that on judgment day, no one will have an excuse before God. No one will have an excuse on Judgment Day. But someone says, well, God, you gave me this body that makes me, stop, makes me continue in sin. You're slandering the character of God. Because who gave you your body? 
God did. You're made in the image of God. God knit you together in your mother's womb. You're fearfully and wonderfully made according to the Bible. Your Bible will never cause you to sin. 1 John 1.8. How many verses did we just go through in 1 John? 15, 20? Yeah, the whole book is just addressing this issue left and right. And there's one verse, 1 John 1.8. People who come against perfection will read this one verse. And I wonder if they've read the rest of the book. 1 John 1.8. Let me read it real quick. That's one of the ones I don't have memorized. I probably should by now. All the times I've heard it quoted. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Well, the claim is here that in the Greek it's in present tense. If we claim to have no sin presently, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But how can that be, how can that really be what it's saying if the rest of the book is saying the exact opposite? Well, here's what I think it's saying. It's not saying that we have to always constantly be in sin, we have to always be a sinner, or that we have some kind of sinful nature that's making us sin. It's simply saying, we always have sin on our record. My record is stained with sin. I've been so wicked in the past. Thank you for the grace of God and the blood of Jesus that He's cleansed me. And like 1 John 1, 9 says, anyone confesses their sins, He's faithful and just to forgive them of their sins and cleanse them from how much? All unrighteousness. He's cleansed me from all unrighteousness. I may still have sin on my record, and therefore, presently, I do still have sin on my record. Because God could reinstall it if He wanted to, and if I depart from the faith and cause me to give an account for my life, please cleanse me, and I, I plan on walking with Him the rest of my days. So it's talking about sin on your record. Finally, the final objection I, I hear is, I don't, you wouldn't need Jesus if you could live perfect. Well, I think we've gone through enough verses that show that it's through Jesus we become perfect by having our past sins forgiven first of all and second of all he gives the power the grace the victory to overcome sin every single day every moment of every single day that we're abiding in him we're abiding in him the Bible says we're more than conquerors through Jesus Christ Romans 8 37 we can walk in victory not defeat So the question becomes for you, personally, individually. Let's make this personal now. What are you doing? Are you walking in victory? Are you making justification or excuses for your sin? Are you living holy for God? Are you walking in the light as He's in the light? Or are you walking in darkness? Whatever it is, friends, you need to give it up. You need to give it up. You will reap what you've sown. If you sow to please the, the flesh, you'll reap destruction. If you sow to please the Spirit, you'll reap everlasting life. There's no excuses, friends. No excuses for your sins, ever. And if you stay in your sins, friend, or you make excuses for your sins, and you die in your sins, you will go to hell for your sins. So I plead with you, get this doctrine right. The Bible says in the last days, false teachers will come. And they'll come as angels of light. They'll come as, right, uh, as teachers of righteousness. You know, in, in, in America, we have this thing called rat poison. So you probably have some here too. If you look at the bottom right-hand corner of the rat poison, it'll say 99.99% food. 0.01% poison. It fools the rat. That's the only reason he eats it. 
And I submit to you, there's a lot of teachers around these days who have a lot of good food from the Word. But that little bit of poison, it'll kill you. It'll kill you. Be discerning, friends. Don't give in to this lie of the devil that you can't completely obey God in this life. If you don't completely obey God in this life, you'll never, ever completely obey God because you'll go to hell in the end. You'll go to hell in the end. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, I thank You for Your Word. It's a lamp unto our feet. It's a light unto our path. From the Word, we get all kinds of good doctrine, Lord. It's profitable for us, Lord. I pray that whatever we read in Your Word, we would just obey it. Not to be anyone in here tonight, Lord Jesus, who is... Uh, refusing to submit to you, making excuses for sin. I pray you draw them near. I pray they would draw near to you, Lord. They'd humble themselves. And they repent of their sins once and for all. Give it up. Give it up for you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your love. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the blood. Thank you for your suffering and your crucifixion and your, and your death. And thank you for the resurrection. And as Paul says, that I may know the fellowship of your suffering and the power of your resurrection in this life. Be glorified through us, Lord Jesus, in every thought, word, and deed. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.